formation. Said firmly with no hesitation. Concern for your tears recently went on vacation. We are unbothered by your hating and your condemnation. It is simply confirmation and the very reason we're celebrating. This is the manifestation of a bloodline that birthed a nation. We ain't offspring, we're the foundation of creation. When you sip from Mother Earth, you're drinking our libations. This is lyrical liberation. You wanna be mad at something? Be mad at the blood on the hands of this nation. This is the reincarnation of a spirit that has no expiration. This is old Negro spiritual salvation. That down south church fan waving congregation. This is B's black fist standing on rock nation. But since you seem to need some clarification, this is for 40 acres and a mule reparations. For picking cotton and fields with no compensation. For not telling slaves about emancipation. For Rosa being told to get in the back of your transportation. For Sarah Bartman's humiliation at the hands of your exploitation. This is for co-opting a culture with weak imitations. For Martin and Malcolm's assassinations. For countless years of segregation. For every time you told our sisters and brothers to assume the formation. For keeping them locked in a system chained to probation. For a racist system masquerading as fair administration. This is for Sandra Bland dead on the floor of a police station, for smallpox infestation. This is for Tuskegee experimentation, for telling us why all lives matter with no qualifications. This is for brutally raping a nation, for Eric Garner suffocation. This is for a black male shot dead at Fruitville Station. And this voice, this voice is the reincarnation of everyone you murdered with no justification. Now you bow down and simply assume the formation. Hey everybody, welcome to a new episode of Rebuilding. This is Missy. This is Crimson. And we are so excited today. We have on Hannah Drake from Louisville. Uh, Hannah, say hi. Hello, everyone. Um, I am a giant fan of Hannah's. She is an artist, poet, writer. I guess all those things also fall under artist. Um, activist. <laughs> uh, Hannah, what am I leaving out? What else do you do? A, a, a writer, author, uh, rabble rouser. <laughs> rabble rouser is one of my favorite phrases yeah, yeah, yeah. it's uh it's important to cause good trouble yes very much so very much so i hope i'm doing a good job at causing good trouble well you sure got me fired up so i i had not been exposed to hannah missy had been fangirling about you hannah for a long time and I have no attention to detail and I don't really pay attention to things. And so when I saw you speak at the Bernie Sanders and Charles Booker event, I just was like, okay, like this person is powerful and this voice needs to be elevated in every way possible. Thanks. And so, no, it was, I mean, I got to be honest, like, no offense, Charles, I love you. But it was one of the best speeches of the day. Like, um, it, no, I mean, it stood out and it was just, I don't know, like I kept getting out of my seat, like, hell yeah. Like, I don't know. It was exactly what at least I needed. It was my first time out in the world since the pandemic had hit and not right. yeah. gathering and I don't know. It just was, it was inspiring. And so I wanted to hear more about you and I wanted, you know, here in Northern Kentucky, people may not be as exposed to you. So I wanted our huge fan base, of like a few hundred people to be exposed to you um, and to elevate your voice. So let's start with, I'm just curious, like how you got here, how you got to be a writer and um, like what kind of inspired you in the path that got you to where you are right now. I've always loved uh, writing and reading. I always tell 
uh, young people that are trying to be poets or they want to be an author is that a good um, poet is an excellent reader. And so you have to read, you know, and, and learn and all those things. And I always loved reading. For some reason, words just clicked with me. I just could understand how they were supposed to go together. The same way someone can look at numbers and math is easy for them, which math isn't easy for me, but words were always easy for me. And then I think I was in high school, I believe, and I saw uh, Maya Angelou at um, Bill Clinton's inauguration. And I thought, well, wow, what, whatever it is she's doing, that's exactly what I want to do. Um, and so I've been writing for forever, but I didn't know that it would be to this extent or that one day it would, it would be my primary career. Um, I wanted it to be, but I certainly didn't know that's the way it was going to go. But then in 20. 16 I wrote a poem called Formation that went viral yeah, and I and I'd written a lot of things but it's the first thing that I ever wrote that went viral um, and then a lot of people just started paying attention to a lot of my work but I've been writing for a long time before that so that's awesome. I really love um, how you have a very strong and unique voice to talk about uh, why I discovered you in 2020. Uh, and of course, racism in America and especially Kentucky was a, a huge topic. Yes. Um, have Has your writing always revolved around, um, you know, what we like to call like social issues or did it start in one place and, and, and kind of- Yeah, it's you know, always been around social issues. And I, and I didn't know why that was. Um, I just have always felt like I needed to say something about people that were oppressed. I mean, especially just being a Black woman, um, you know, it's just the life that you live and you want to write about it and talk about it. And I, you know, I've always asked, like, why was I given this particular assignment? Why, you know, what, didn't I get the assignment to just write love poems or to write mysteries <laughs> or to write... So something, something else where I won't get hate mail every day or something. Like yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Like, why is this the assignment that was given to me? But I just think it was why I was put on this earth. And I believe that I'm here for this particular time. But I've always asked myself that and I, I don't have an answer except for it's just you know, I was just the one that was supposed to do it. So nice. Well, I, I, and I think that, you know, you point this out in some of your writings about how your voice needs to be heard, right? Like, I mean, the the voice of the Black woman has been completely trampled on for, I don't know, like, ever. And it's, it, and there, we need to make space for this conversation and we need to make space for your voice. And um, that was one of my questions and you addressed it. Like, how, how do you find the bravery to do what you do? you do, which is talk on these issues that can be seen as controversial, but obviously it's like most things, it sounds like you were just called to it. Yeah, and, and, and I will say, and I tell people this all the time with my writing, it's not that I'm not afraid, I just do it afraid. And, yeah. and I know that I'm going to, you know, like last year I wrote this letter to the CEO of Churchill Downs, um, uh, because uh, during the Breonna Taylor protest, there was a protest on the day that they switched uh, Derby, which I believe was in the first Saturday in September, somewhere around that time. And, and they were still having, you know, guests at 
Derby and just like going on with life as if they had <clears throat> been under a rock. So I had to write this letter and, and I was scared to write this letter. I mean, it, it dawned on me, like when we were in the height of the coronavirus and at that particular time, so this was before May. And at that particular time, um, they were still going to have Derby and have 20,000 people in this space. And at that time, the governor was saying that we couldn't gather with more than 10 people. And so it dawned on me, oh, well, that's who has the power in this state. It has to be the person at Churchill Downs, because if the governor is telling us that we cannot gather in, you know, with more than 10 people, but he's okay with allowing Derby to go forward with 20,000 people, then I knew that was who had the power in the city. Um, and so I wrote this letter to the CEO of, of Churchill Downs and uh, put it on my blog. And I challenged them uh, to deal with their backside uh, of Churchill Downs um, and the people that work on the backside that aren't treated fairly. And I also challenged them to pick a side when it comes to uh, race relations in Kentucky. And uh, so many of, uh, in the first derby and many thereafter, were won by um, black jockeys that nobody had essentially heard of. These people were essentially erased from the story of the Kentucky Derby. In addition to the slaves that helped uh, 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 run the, the Churchill Downs. And so there was this history that Churchill Downs needed to reckon with. So I had to write this letter and I was afraid to write this letter because I figure if the governor is okay with this institution allowing 20,000 people to still come in the height of a pandemic, then, then this is someone that is extremely powerful. This is a very powerful institution. And so I wrote the blog and I did not know at the time that NPR would pick up the blog and then it went viral. So I knew by that time, everybody had seen the letter. Um, and so I told people that was not comfortable for me and it didn't feel good. And it wasn't that I wasn't afraid or thought of like, how will this impact my career? And, you know, I'm sure, you know, he has friends in high places and he's friends with people that I might know and how will, how will that come across? Well, in turn, and they never, Church announced never responded. Not like I thought they would, but they never responded to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in turn, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, I was at an event and, and, um, um, I met a guy who does the history of black jockeys and he introduced himself and he thanked me for writing this letter. And so uh, he said Churchill Downs reached out to him so they can start highlighting the black jockeys. And then shortly thereafter, I learned about Churchill Downs sponsoring Justice Now for their uh, Justice Fest and, and many other things. And then, so a lot of things have come, and I think they just hired a diversity and equity and inclusion uh, director for Churchill Downs. But a lot of things have come out of that, although they will probably never publicly acknowledge that letter had some impact. Um, it was read thousands of times around the world, so I know that they saw it. Um, and then just hold their feet to the fire. and. And sometimes you have to do that at the expense of yourself for the better of the community or betterment of the nation. But that's what, what people have done, you know, for years, you know, mm -hmm. Dr. King and Rosa and Malcolm and, and Fanny, so many people have done that, that you, 
it's a sacrifice, but it's something you're called to do and you know you're doing it for the betterment of, and I did it because I wanted the city to be better. And I knew these people had the power and they had the resources to make a difference. So it didn't matter to me that I was afraid. I was gonna do it afraid. It didn't matter what it cost me at that time. It sounds like one of those scenarios you hear a lot of people talk about that when you do something, you don't realize how much courage it took. It's upon reflection that you you see your own courage. Right. Yeah. And you don't, you're, you're doing it because you, you are called to do it. And so you know you have to do it, even if you're afraid. Right. And I tell people that all the time. I don't, it doesn't matter that you're scared. Do it afraid. Right. And, and, and yeah. trust that if you have this assignment to do that, it's going to be okay. Um, but, you know, I've already counted the cost. There's so much going on in this nation that I've already counted the cost. So whatever it's going to cost me doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is justice. Right. You have nothing to lose when the justice isn't there to begin with. Right. So what, what, yeah. what will Churchill Downs do to me? Uh, you're not doing anything for me now. You're not. (laughs) I had nothing to lose. I mean, either they were going to change and they still quite a long way to go or, or not, but you know, it it was, I don't know what it could have cost me outside of relationships. It may have cost me some speaking engagement, but I, I didn't care about that. I just cared about holding this institution's feet to the fire. And, and that's what we have to do many times, but a lot of people, you know, they're, they're just afraid. And, 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 this, and I saw the list of things we'll talk about, and, and even when dealing with racism, um, it's going to cost white people something. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that many people don't wanna do that you are going to have to give up something. And often it's not even something that's tangible, right? Um, But you may have to, even now when we watch, and this just happened in Kentucky because, you know, anytime, you know, something racist is going on in the world, I'm like, when is Kentucky? Like what time is Kentucky gonna show up? (laughs) And so I knew it was just a matter of time before Kentucky uh, wants to, you know, they pre-filed a law that, that they will talk about next year uh, to not allow schools in Kentucky to teach about racism and other issues. Yeah, Hannah, actually, so that conversation was started by some of the good troublemakers here in my community in Fort Thomas. So Representative Joe Fisher pre-filed that today or yesterday. Yesterday. Yes, as a result. So I live in Fort Thomas, which is uh, above average, our average income, 75000 a year. Um, We have the first or second best school district in the state of Kentucky, depending on the year. And we, the average education is a bachelor's degree. So that gives you, I think maybe 1% of our population in the city is people of color, maybe 2%. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was I mean, I got to give my community credit. A lot of people, you know, we were just talking about this fear of addressing these issues. And a lot of people were kind of like looking to people like me and other community advocates that are proud, you know, Democrats, proud progressives, uh, proud advocates to kind of take on this issue. And a lot of us pushed it back to the community of like, no, 
you need to have skin in the game and you need yeah. to start getting used to being uncomfortable. And not only did they lose on getting the special, it, it was an elective that they were fighting for on social justice. Um, they lost on that. And then our representative came out with this bill as kind of a slap in the face to the mobilization of people he saw in the district rally around having this kind of course offered at our high school. Um, and so you just merged like the worlds I've been living in and the wars that I've been fighting locally. And yeah, and 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 to your point, like we they had to do what they had to do and the back yeah. It was big. Now it's becoming a statewide issue. We're talking about it here on this podcast, but um, it taught a lot of people in my community that have had privilege to not have to address anything to finally see that like going out for coffee with these, these people that spout how horrible critical race theory is to our children. Um, and seeing that it's their neighbors, like, as I keep saying, we've pulled the hoods off. Like, yeah. now, you know, the scary part, you know, yes. for people, but it's, it's, you know, what I would ask that representative is what are you afraid of? Right. Children learning, you know, and, 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 and so I wrote at the beginning of February, I wrote, um, it's time we had a white history month. Right. And so, <laughs> <laughs> I wrote this article called, that's what the, what's the title of the article. It's time we had a white history month or the title kind of threw people for a loop and you start reading it. And I said, I appreciate that white people may want to learn something about black people. I want white people to learn about white people. <laughs> and I want, yeah. <laughs> That is a great reframing of like really what has to happen. Yeah. Right. I, and I want, when you talk about history, like I remember I went to um, Natchez, Mississippi and uh, in Natchez, it was the second um, largest slave market in the South called Forks of the Road. And so I started touring all these plantation homes, which were like their mansions. They're not just a regular home, they're mansions. And, and like about the third or fourth one, everything kind of starts looking alike. Like everyone has the beautiful furniture and it's still furnished. It's all still, you know, furnished. And so I asked one of the uh, curators of one of the plantation homes, so you can pay to, you know, cause I have to pay cause my family could have built it or whatever. And so you have to pay to go visit these homes. So I pay and I'm visiting these homes. So I asked the curator, well, take me where my people would have been because I know I wouldn't have been in this house. So where are the slave quarters? Where is that at? And she said, oh, we bricked all those over and turned them into offices. And so it's as if they have this image of the plantation home, which is stunning. It is beautiful. And the people that were enslaved on this plantation are erased. Wow. So they can tell a completely different narrative. Right. Right. And and that. And so in in Kentucky, I've been working on this project called the Unknown Project to highlight uh, people that were enslaved in Kentucky. And when I was in Natchez, I went to the uh, African-American Museum and on the wall, they had a map and all these lists of names. And they showed how Kentucky was. Um, bringing people down the river so that of course that's where that phrase comes from being sold down the river they were literally selling black people down the river to mississippi so kentucky was a slave breeding state 
And so I started discovering all of these hundreds upon hundreds, thousands of names, uh, many of them unknown names of people that were enslaved that Kentucky uh, sold down the river. And so that is a history that's been hidden, right? And so, but here's what people need to understand. When I went back to uh, Senegal in Africa, uh, my friend told me the blood always returns. The blood will always try to return home. And I said, the blood will always cry out for justice. It doesn't matter how long it's going to take because people want their stories told. People wanna to say that they existed, that they were here. And Kentucky has done this great job of covering this up, but why? And so it's difficult, like in that article, it's time we had a white history month. It is difficult. And some of your listeners might not like this, but it's just reality. It's difficult for white people to face that in fact, you aren't the hero. You're the villain in the story of America, mm -hmm. you know, and when you've been told all your life, we were the heroes and we came over here and they had like this big dinner with Native Americans and we were, no, you slaughtered Native Americans. You gave them sheets filled with disease. Mm -hmm. You stole their land. You are the villain in the story of America. You stole people from Africa, brought them here in chains and enslaved them for hundreds of years. Yeah. And that's, you know, the little bit of history that we find that's what we know. When you know something and it's horrible, then you know it's worse than what you know because the, yeah. the horrible part is what people always wanna hide. So if they let you know the horrible part, then you know it's probably 10 times worse than the little bit we know. And so that's difficult for white people to face. And this is going into the 10th stages of facing racism. It's difficult to face, why? Because it doesn't feel good. Right. It's uncomfortable. I don't like it. I don't wanna talk about it. I don't wanna discuss. If we just don't discuss it, it'll just go away. No one says that about like cancer. Like we just don't discuss the cancer, it'll yeah. disappear. You know, that never happens. You know, mm -hmm. and so people just don't want to discuss racism because, and this is the sad part, if they were to just shake the leaves of their family tree, they would be stunned by what will fall out. And doing this unknown project, I've had many white people come to me and release the names of people that their family enslaved, right? And so there's often ties to slavery. You know, there's often ties to some type of injustice and it doesn't feel good. And I always ask white people, who told you it was gonna feel good? Like who gave you that promise? Who yeah. said it was gonna feel good all the time? And so when I talk about race and teaching, I tell people, Dealing with racism is like working out. It's not going to feel good, but it will be good for you. And the longer you stick with it, the easier it will get to deal with it. But the very first day you hit the gym, it's not going to feel good. And that's the part that people need to get over. And I tell them, if you just work through that little part of being uncomfortable, there is something on the other side of that you know, that is beautiful for this country, but people are always stuck in the uncomfortable part. They never want to work through that part because it doesn't feel good. 
That is so fucking true. Yes. Uh, white people hate being told anything uh, about privilege or that I'm not racist. I have a black friend and all that fucking bullshit. We're all, all white people are fucking racist. We're all fucking assholes. We've all benefited from it. Well, and that's and, a and- difficult thing for people to admit. And this is the first thing people will say when I teach about privilege. Is that you, I grew up poor as if yeah. poor and black <laughs> is synonymous, right? <clears throat> you can not be rich all. and black and still not have privilege, right? Yeah. Because we've seen Kobe Bryant have, I mean, not Kobe Bryant, I'm sorry, LeBron James have the N-word spray painted on his garage. We've seen Oprah Winfrey, one of the richest black women in the world, be denied access to shopping in a store. We've seen racism happen to very wealthy people, right? And so, but people think privilege is the thing you get. Like I go to the store and I'm gonna buy this box of privilege and I have it. But the simple fact that you are born white in a world that is constructed, this is what many white people can't even wrap their minds around, that an entire world really, but we're just talking about America, is constructed for you. Mm -hmm. I've never really been anywhere where the entire place was constructed for my comfort. And we will make laws, we will pass policies to continue to maintain white comfort. Right. And so that's it's just a privilege to be able to walk in any neighborhood you want to or go to the store and people aren't following you. And many things about this white people never even have to think about. And that's a privilege. You know, when I went to Senegal and, you know, everybody in Senegal is pretty much black. And I was there for two weeks, but about the second week. We went to buy some earrings and I was holding them so the shopkeeper wouldn't think I was trying to steal them because I'm used to that in America. You know, you have to hold things a certain way and look a certain way because I don't think you still. <clears throat> so when I went to pay for the earrings, the shopkeeper was outside of the shop talking to someone and it dawned on me there because everybody is black that uh, being black wasn't a crime. And so I realized Like I had a week of freedom. Like I could just live and not worry about that anymore. Because in America, it's always on an endless loop in your head, you know, where you can shop, where you can walk, what neighborhood you can be in. There are even neighborhoods, towns in Kentucky I would never drive in, right? But I'm sure most white people think they could drive anywhere. You know, I'm going to go visit this town because I want to. But Black people have to think, is this a town that I can visit and, and be welcomed? And I mean, that's privilege to not have to yeah, think yeah. about that. And that's what many white people don't, don't understand. They think when we say privilege, we are saying all white people are rich. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I really thought that the pandemic would highlight exactly what you said, because for me, and maybe this is a weird way to think about it, but I'm like, oh, this is what it's like to be black. I'm scared to leave my home. <laughs> right. Like everything is a danger now and seeing the backlash of people like losing their shit over their inability to go get a $15 cocktail yep I thought would be some kind of slap in the face of like do you see what privilege means now like yeah it it didn't work it didn't work this was like avoided people bitched about it and avoided the reality and there was no lesson to be learned but I'm sitting over here like 
wow, like this is a new form of empathy for me for what it must be like to be a, a person of color in this country because I have to fear things I never had to fear before, which are basic privileges that many of my friends never had to begin with. I think it was one of the first times many white people even had to think about space, right? right? And right? I talk mm-hmm. about space quite often and encouraging black people to take up space because in this, and there were actual laws, you know, where black people couldn't walk on the sidewalk. And if, and if a white person was coming, you had to get off the sidewalk, let them pass so you could get back on it. And once again, I wrote this blog. It's my most read blog ever. It's been read millions of times. Do not move off the sidewalk. And I encouraged a black people not to move out of the way of a white person for 48 hours and see who moves first. See, see who's expected to move first and then come back and tell, tell me how that experience is. Yeah. And, you know, I did preface it and say, obviously, you just use common sense. You know, you're supposed to move. Some white person has 100 grocery bags. Well, of course you move. Or if they move in furniture, of course, you know, use common sense. But in, in general terms, if you're walking in a store or whatever, come back. Um, so many people came back to tell me that once they noticed this, that Black people are always expected to move out of the way, right? To just minimize. Um, And so this article got picked up um, uh, by someone in London. Same thing happened in London. Uh, A woman did the article in this process to see how it worked in India. And she said, India, we don't have Black and white, but we have light-skinned Indians and darker-skinned. And the darker-skinned Indians would always move out of the way of the light-skinned uh, Indians. And so people notice, and once you see it, you'll never unsee, you will always notice this. And so I told black people, take up space. You, you are here, you belong here, you're supposed to be in space. And a lot, when we think about a lot of um, uh, some of the uh, police brutality is simply because black people were in a space that white people didn't think they should have been in. When you think about the death of Trayvon Martin, who was simply going to the store, getting Skittles and tea, somebody made the decision that this black kid doesn't belong in my neighborhood. You know, so when you think about a lot of these uh, incidences, it's always about space. And I think for the pandemic was one of the first times that I've seen in my lifetime that white people had to be cognizant of their space and they didn't like it. They revolted against that, but it's okay for everybody else, right? But not us, right? Because you have, you know, and this is what I said in the in the pandemic. This nation has largely told white people do whatever you want to do, and this is one of the first times uh, that I've seen collectively that white people were told you have to wear masks, you can't go here, you can't do that, and they yeah. revolted against that. But if it was anybody else, it'd be like, well. Why didn't y'all follow the rules? You know, yeah. a rule is a rule. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. I should have listened to the officials. I've never seen so many people get mad that they could not get like a ten dollar great clips cut. Yeah, it's like oh, the oppression. You're so oppressed because yeah. you can't get your hair cut. You know, you're so oppressed because you have to wear wear a mask. You know, and you don't think about how do you not pause to think about how black people were treated historically and currently in this nation where you, yes. you're feeling the oppression 
for wearing a mask uh, for 10 minutes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think uh, pre-COVID, something that really opened my eyes to racism was the LGBTQ movement, mm-hmm. and just how much ground we made in like 15 years. You know, yeah. like the internet came out, uh, you know, Massachusetts is like the first state to legalize marriage. 15 years later, almost everyone's happy and gay. And it goes back to white, <laughs> it, like it goes back to like being born into white families. Like right. if gay people weren't born in white families, like we wouldn't have any of this fucking shit. And I, I also think, um, and it is Pride Month, and I also think with um, the LGBTQ movement, and this is what, I, you know, and I, I've struggled with this, and people have argued me down, argued me down, and, and, and finally, I think people are, are getting it, that being LGBTQ is not a get out of racism free card. Oh, right? no. <laughs> right. You know, like people that, are so racist. <laughs> like people, you know, like people act as if there are no racist LGBTQ people, they just don't exist, you know, like, but that's not reality, you know, that's not like, oh, well, I'm gay, so I, how can I be racist? Very easily. Very easily. (laughs) But what I want the LGBTQ community to understand, I mean, even, I believe it was last year, they were trying to discriminate LGBTQ, and the Supreme Court went all the way back to the Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. and said, that's why you can't discriminate against LGBTQ people in 2020. And what people don't understand is that when black people rise, everybody rises, everybody benefits. Who knew, you know, in 2020, that a group LGBTQ group would benefit from something that black people were fighting for, for years. And that's why, you know, I always tell white people, it just makes sense because there's not, just because of how the system is designed and catered to your favor, which is what we just talked about earlier, that if it benefits Mm -hmm. black people, it's inevitably going to benefit you because that's the way the system is simply designed. You know, and a lot of people think, uh, you know, even you think about, um, uh, uh, COVID-19 and, and the governor extending uh, uh, health care. And now, and then he said, you know, it's impacting Black people more and we need to make sure that Black people have health care. But then it opened up for everybody, yep. you know, so it benefits everyone because if it benefits Black people, I can guarantee you it will benefit everybody in this nation. And yep. that's where people struggle, struggle. It's, it's like that part doesn't click for people. It's a complete play on like the word snowflakes that they came out with themselves. Like they're just getting emotionally charged for not being identified verbally in this movement, even though they're benefiting from it. And you will benefit. Yeah, you will. You know, even when we think about Breonna Taylor and everything that happened in in our city and we fought to get Breonna's law passed so that the police could not enter people's homes on a no-knock warrant and kill someone else. Well, it wasn't, well, we want Brianna's law to pass and the police can't enter any black homes. Mm-hmm. It's right. passed, so the police can't do this anywhere. Right. You know, so if it's a black home, why does it doesn't matter? Nobody should have the police enter their home on a no-knock warrant. And so we were doing it to get justice for Brianna, a black woman, but it benefits everyone. And that's what people don't don't see. Yeah. No, Wait, no, I mean, it, the government. <laughs> until it doesn't benefit them well white people don't like to think that they aren't we're all narcissists i mean there's a level of which that we have to believe that 
I mean, even the idea of privilege, a lot of people are like, oh, I, I grew up poor and I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. You know, that's like my favorite one. And it's like, yeah, but the system was designed. So you had the pair of boots with the straps. Right. Like yeah. it, that's, that's why you did it. But like, we're fighting to everyone's born with the boots. Like that's yeah. the point. It's about equality means equity and equality for all not, I mean, but it's turned as it's only for black people. And I, I just, it's mind blowing because so my background is um, in political science. And when I was in graduate school, I did a study and I was looking at gay rights and I was looking specifically among the black community and evangelical communities. And it blew my mind. And I ran my model like 17 days extra to see if it was true because my model kept telling me that the people that felt the most persecuted were the most white and most Christian people in my data sample. <laughs> and I'm <laughs> like, <laughs> this can't be at all. No, I mean, and, and, you know, this was like 25 year old Crimson, like itching my head, like, how am I going to go present this to my advisory committee when it's telling me like the most privileged among us feel the most persecuted right. yet mm -hmm. the most persecuted among us have gratitude like what why what is happening and my model was right and I guess you know over the last 15 years I've seen it play out much more clearly but it is an extremely interesting phenomenon when people that are are victims of the system are able to have the hope and courage and strength to like not be the victim but the people that are benefiting from the system are the victims still. It's it's, yeah. it's just mind blowing. It's absolutely mind blowing. It's it's not even surprising to me at all. No, I'm I'm at sure all. it's not. It's the it's it's what you live, right? It's 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 the the day to day of your life versus those that have the privilege of the system, like yeah. benefit from it daily. And you know, going back to the history part, I don't understand and and. I don't know, this is a conversation about love and feelings, but how can you even say you love your nation when you don't freaking know it? Like, yeah, if you, you don't yeah, know you, your yeah. history, like, what do you love about America? Like, what is it specifically that makes you patriotic if you aren't even at terms with who we are as a country? Yeah, and, and, and afraid to, you know, across this nation, you know, this is an effort to ban you know, teaching about race and and really, I don't even say it's teaching about race, it's teaching the real history of America. And it's not a pretty history. No. And that's difficult um, mm -hmm. uh, for white people to face, but it's reality. The, the evidence is there. And so we saw, uh, I think it was Sunday, they did a documentary on the Tulsa massacre, which was a hundred years ago. They just wiped out this city completely um and so many people were stunned like oh i never learned i didn't know this happened. and i want to ask them so badly if you're stunned and shocked that that happened in america imagine all the other things that happened mm -hmm. that you don't know about and that you should learn about because then maybe that will make you understand why some policies need to change but people just don't want to take the time to learn the history because it's not a pretty history. And I get it. 
if you, it's, it's like being a parent, you're a horrible parent, you're abusive, you're this, that, and the third, and then your, your kids are grown and they want to discuss it. And you say, I don't, that's a long time ago. I don't talk about it anymore. That's over. I'm a new person now. But mm -hmm. you know, you, and you don't want to talk about it because it's not going to make you feel good and it's not going to paint you in a good light. Um, but in order to heal, you always have to face something. You have That's such to. a good allegory. Yeah. Yeah. No, so it's, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go for it. Um, well, I wanted to make sure we got to talk about the book because I really like this book. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm being selfish right now and, and cutting over to it. Um, so it, Crimson and I both got your book off of Amazon. Uh, it's called uh, uh, Dear White Women, It's Not You, It's Me and Breaking Up With You. Um, and I, I fucking loved it. It was Thank fantastic. You. I thought it was brilliant. I loved it. Thank you. Yeah. There were a number of books on there that, that we could have chosen from. And we went with this one just because it was so relevant to 2020. I, even though it came out in 2019, I feel like just like the subject matter, it's even more important now to learn yeah. from. Um, yeah. So everyone jump on Amazon and get it. Uh, but you. what was your inspiration for it? You know, I, I wrote many, many, many articles and talked to many conversations and dinner with white women. Um, and it seemed like, like maybe we were on the right path and then it just didn't go right. Uh, it sounds seemed like me like dating. Time, yeah, right. This was like a bad, a bad relationship, yeah. <laughs> you know, where you're trying to make it work and you're trying to stick it out for the kids, you know, <laughs> and it just seemed like, boy, this isn't working. And then we saw in the election everyone talked about the 53 percent, and we were on mm. those women we were on them we were getting and then of the women the white women that voted even more voted uh for donald trump and i thought boy something is not clicking it's not uh working here and i was expending a lot of energy and effort having talks and meeting with people and i thought I, you know, I'm just, I'm breaking up with you. This is over. And <laughs> Hence the that, title. <laughs> and that was the title. And then so many white women messaged me and said, Hannah, please don't break up with me. And I said, I'm mm -hmm. not going to break up with you, but goodness, you got to do better, you know, because mm -hmm. black women, black people, but particularly black women <laughs> expend so much energy and you think, okay, we, we, we have this commonality where we're women, we're supposed to be, you know, toughing it out together and, and fighting all the wrong in the world as women. And, and you're supposed to be my sister and I'm your sister, we're in this together. And to find out that indeed, you know, uh, that white women uh, uh, don't necessarily have your best interest at heart. You know, there is yeah. a, a book called They Were Her Property um, that talks about white women's involvement in slavery and white mm -hmm. women are often uh, left out of the story of slavery, left out of the story of Jim Crow, left out of the story of the suffering of black people. But when we see, like when we see all the, the barbecue Bettys and all the Beckys and all that, you know, and people calling the police, some black people, it's white women. White oh, women are at the helm of this. I, I right. sometimes say like, Six-year-old white women are either your biggest advocates or the most dangerous people you'll ever meet. 
Yes, yes, yes. So people, you know, it, you know, and, and white women need to certainly look, look at that. Um, you know, I, I believe that white women, women, period, yeah. have a lot of influence, you have a lot of influence yeah. uh, in your, in your home. And so how are you speaking to your husbands and sons? But then it dawned on me, you all are supporting them. You're a part of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's happening in this nation. You, so you white women have to come to terms with it. yet another article I wrote. It may be in that book, a white women are always allowed to be the victim, right? Yeah, that yes. is. And mm-hmm. so, but white women need to come to terms with the fact that in fact, you are a co-conspirator mm-hmm. in what is happening in this nation. Uh, you don't uh, get a get out of jail free card. You are right side by side uh, and, and sadly, even, even though it went down a little bit, less white men voted for Trump. It's like a few of them got it and it clicked, but more white women voted for Trump in this election, but ju- it went down a little bit for white men, but white women increased. And so you are co-conspirators mm-hmm. in this. And a lot of times people let a white woman off the hook because they are women. But in fact, no, you are standing side by side with your partners, your husbands, your girlfriends. Yeah your kids and you are contributing uh, to what's happening in this nation. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It makes me think of the part in your book where you compare the stats of um of people that voted for uh, uh Roy Moore versus yeah. Doug Jones. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah, that shit for- was disturbing. Like yeah. I knew it, but like reading it again I'm like god, what are we going to do? And yeah. then you have in typical fashion that black women will come fix it, right? And so yeah. it's like white people white women do you tear it down and then we saw what happened in this nation the last four years and then people were waiting for mm-hmm. black women to okay vote like this and then Stacey Abrams are going to flip Georgia and essentially a black woman Stacey Abrams and everybody that worked with her all the other groups fixed it yep because she saved our country she saved the country right however in in Georgia's when that election was stolen from her, you know, technically mm-hmm. she really should have been the governor of, of Georgia, you yes. know, but the election was stolen from her and, and many people, you know, white people were quiet about that, but when yeah. it was time to save the nation, she essentially picked as a black, black women always do this, will pick this nation up on his back and drag it across the finish line. And that's tiring. And we're asking white people and white women, if you are our counterpart, when are you going to do your part to do that? So either you admit that you are a part of the problem or be a part of the solution. Yeah, it's it's a fucked up system because, you know, racism is not a black problem. You know, white people created it. Only white people can fix it. You know, I try to talk to, you know, people in the LGBTQ community because they are so fucking racist, uh, just like we discussed. And I'm like, you know, gay people could not have fixed, you know, homophobia. It had to be straight people looking at other straight people saying, Mm -hmm. shut the fuck up. Don't use those terms. Like, why can't we see that this problem is even like a million times larger to this other population? Very, very, very true. And then even when people look at the history of pride and the black people that were involved in Stonewall and oh, yeah. off, you know, the riots and like you, you need to, to know, once again, know your history right. of things yeah. and the black people that were involved in that, that have, and black people always have so much to lose, right? 
Mm-hmm. But here's the thing, even with Stacey Abrams or even with Stonewall or anything, and like we talked about the system, what white people need to inherently understand are black is black people are fighting to save ourselves, right? So I'm sure Stacey Abrams was fighting in Georgia because she knew we cannot have another Mitch McConnell controlled uh, uh, Senate. That cannot happen uh, because he's really the puppet master, right? And so black people are often working overtime to really save us, but because of how the system is designed, white people just benefit from our work, right? And so, mm-hmm. and so, you know, even when we talk about civil rights, well, LGBTQ, white LGBTQ people benefited from black people fighting from, for civil rights. And it's like this whole country benefited from a black woman fighting in Georgia, you know, mm-hmm. so that black people and brown people could vote. Uh, and so that's, but that's how the system is, is set up, but white people need to understand. And that's why a lot of black people are tired. There's a lot of our fight. We're not fighting to save you. You don't need us to save you. We're fighting to save ourselves and you are reaping the benefits of that. Yeah. It, it, we could, you know, white people could just, you know, they're the majority in power. They could just take care of the issue and fix it for everyone. Uh, right. We want to just, you know, reap the benefits of your work. Right. Like it doesn't even have to be a fight. Like we shouldn't have to fight this hard to yeah. vote we shouldn't have to fight this hard you know uh, for black people not to be murdered in their homes we shouldn't have to fight yeah. this hard for kids to learn about history when like you said there are white people in power that can simply say i'm not passing that stupid law like don't even file that crap you know like, don't yeah be, you know or, or i you know i'm gonna allow everybody to vote we're gonna set it up fairly we'll have drop by like why so so then you ask yourself if it's that easy and most of these people can do these things with the signature, then what are you fighting to maintain? You're fighting to maintain white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. Or they'll only rail against someone as extreme as Trump. Like yeah. I, I wonder how many people praise Stacey Abrams for saving us in November um, and then turn around and ignored the new voter laws that they put through just a few months right. later or are going to vote right. for Republican state legislators because they're not as openly racist as Trump. Right, exactly, exactly. Very, very much so. Yep. You get it. Well, don't break up with me. <laughs> I'm not gonna break up with you. I just want to start dating to be clear. Like <laughs> I, I, I want to start that process and then you can decide if you want to dump me or not. <laughs> but I mean you 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 just I mean I th- I think that's why I loved reading your book is that at least this has been the narrative. Like I'm from Los Angeles. I grew up in a totally different world than where we are today in Kentucky. Um, And I just feel like this book said out loud what needs to be said out loud. And it was so nice to have like the, the, the words so eloquently said for me because I couldn't have said them that well. Um, But it's just the, the truth that we need to come to terms with. And I think that the, the part that I, the piece of the puzzle that is the hardest to understand is the defensiveness, right? Yeah. Because a lot of this, you know, the same argument of, well, don't call me privileged. I had to do this on my own could be used as a reason to not be defensive, right? <laughs> like we're talking about like generations ago of, right. of these horrors. It's just asking you to, to be honest about our history and to work on being a better advocate and ally, right? Like 
that's really like the goal. And so why would anyone get defensive at that, that argument? And that's the part that I struggle with having these conversations with other white women, white men is there's like this immediate defensiveness, whether it's from privilege or lack of understanding our history. And I don't know what they're, what are we trying to hang on to? Right? Like what, why can't we be honest about our sins and, and, and fix it? Right. That should drive us for that change. Um, not put us in our shell of defensiveness. Um, and so that's the part that I, I I think (laughs) us white women need to figure out, right. Is how to have these conversations. And so your book was just like a breath of fresh air for someone that's been trying to have these conversations of like, yeah, like I, I'm, I'm not a woman of color. I have not had the same experiences, but from the outside, this is what I've been observing. And, mm-hmm. and it was just, it was great to have it validated. It's going to be a book that I recommend to so many of my friends, because like I had said, you know, uh, representative Fisher's bill was kind of born out of this diversity and inclusion program that our school's trying to implement. And, um, so a lot of white suburban women right now are like, I need to know more. I need to be armed with more information. I need the data. I need to understand. I need to know the history because I don't know how to fight this without that. And so they're finally seeing why it's important to know the sins of our past and to come to terms with them. I think that's the, one of your phases of um, (laughs) facing racism, right? Is acceptance. Like I think a lot of people in my community are moving from that denial phase to acceptance and don't really know where to go from there. And I think books like yours help their narrative inside their heads of where to go from here. Thank you for saying that. And I think, you, you, you know, with that representative and anybody that supports this, it's, I would ask them, and I really want an answer, you know, <laughs> what, what are you afraid of? Right. Because therein lies the problem. If they if they answer that honestly, you know, um, you know, they're just afraid of that the truth is going to come out, right? right. But what what they never planned on in America, in America, you have to so and tell your your friends and people to read the it's time we had a white history month because in fact, you know, what uh, and it was white women. Uh, uh, de- wrote the books and designed the books and came up and distributed them, right? To tell this different tale about slavery. Um, and so, and I believe that now started in Kentucky, if I'm not mistaken. But, but, so, but they didn't plan on that eventually there would be an internet, right? right. <laughs> and, and people could actually look up things and learn things on their own and say, Oh, well, hold on. You know, I just read this art. You know, I, can, I don't have to go to the library necessarily pull out all these books. I can just Google and really look for information. They didn't plan on that part. And so this world is starting to learn that the story t- told me and told kids for years isn't aligning with the truth. It doesn't align. They, you know, young people can immediately tell when something is not making sense. Yeah. And so what, what is it that he's afraid that young people will discover? Exactly. It's not like we can go back and change history. So you're afraid of the history and then ask them why, why are you afraid of the history? And that's the ugly part that they don't want to face. Yeah. Now, and it's the root cause. You're right. 
it's yeah. a root problem. Well, before we, we're running out of time, we don't want to keep you too bit long. Um, we have some fine questions for you. Okay. Here. I like fun questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we go to the fun questions is, uh, do you have any current projects that you have going that you want us to promote? I am working on the unknown project, like I mentioned earlier. Okay. Um, yeah. We'll link to that. That will highlight the names of people that were enslaved in Kentucky. So there will be an art installation down at the waterfront in Louisville. Um, and so people can, we're having like a site dedication uh, June 19th for Juneteenth. Nice. But I believe nice. the benches will be installed in, in July sometime. So. Okay. Congrats. That's awesome. Thank that you. sounds really cool. All right. So fun questions, Hannah. Yep. Missy, I'm handing it over to you. You're more fun. Okay. Well, this one, <laughs> I just, I just want to be cooler. Uh, are there any like young artists or activists that we should be looking out for? You know, I think there's a lot of different young activists that have been involved with Breway for uh, Brianna Taylor, my good friend Streets, 2K. Um, we, we have a group called Take the Seat where we, uh, are encouraging people to learn about politics. Many of them are in part of, I mean, in that group. So if you're on Facebook, join, take the seat because we give you a lot of uh, political information. I'm a white person. I'm definitely on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a part-time job for us. Yeah. <laughs> All right, take the seat. All right, I'm take definitely looking seat. that up. Thank you. Yeah. Um, what is something that you love about living in Kentucky? What is something that I love about living in Kentucky? Well, it's sad to say I love living in Kentucky because I can get to other cities quite easily. <laughs> I do love that. I also, I also do what I have to say, even politically, that um, we have access to many of our politicians. And I don't know if it would be that way in a, in a bigger city that we actually have access and can use our influence to change things. That's so true. We were just, I was just talking about that the other day about how if we were like in a larger state or maybe even yeah. a blue state, like I wouldn't know Charles Booker or Adam right, Scott right. or like any of yeah. my heroes. So I love that we have that access. Yeah. yeah. Love that. Crimson, do you have a fun one? Well, I mean, we could go back to favorite boy band. Oh, I love that. <laughs> All right. Well, of I, course, I love the Jackson 5, but then I grew hmm. up with Jackson 5, but I also loved NSYNC. I loved NSYNC more than uh, Backstreet. Backstreet Boys. I love New Edition and Boys to Men. You know, they don't have groups like that anymore. Have y'all noticed that? They don't yeah. do groups like you that. You know, anymore. but I got to be honest. So here's my beef with Boys to Men. I'm, I'm going to be real. <laughs> Boys to Men spent this my is when we get canceled. <laughs> this is when we get canceled. But they basically sold me a false dream. Like my whole teenage years, they were like, "Crimson, some man's gonna come and whisk you up. And he's gonna treat you like gold, and he's right, gonna make right. you, you know, like every one of those songs built this image of a life that never came true. That never came true. Yeah, and so." I love boys to men. They were a huge part of my life. I, yes. you know, like forever in my heart, but they sold me a lie. They're like fucking Ronald Reagan in that way. So, uh, if I ever met them, I would tell them that. <laughs> Who was your favorite member of NSYNC? 
Justin Timberlake. Loved him. I always knew that Justin Timberlake would leave uh, NSYNC. Same with Beyonce. I knew that she would leave uh, mm-hmm. Destiny's Child. You know, you can just tell when somebody has that spark and Justin Timberlake had it. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a favorite NSYNC song? Probably Bye Bye Bye. Yeah. All right. I may know every dance move, so if I right. that would be Hannah. <laughs> uh, maybe that's how I become one of your girlfriends that you can you can dump later. <laughs> yeah, I'm really old, so I was a new kids on the blocker. Uh, it's culturally appropriated everything. They did. They did. <laughs> they did. Yeah. They were good at that. They, they yeah, they mastered that plan. It was my one shot at being straight, and I failed. <laughs> <laughs> It, Hannah, did you have like something weird that you bought during COVID? You know, I bought a lot of things during COVID where I eventually thought these Amazon people probably can't stand me. <laughs> but I think it's not, I don't know if it's weird, but I, I, I bought a projector for my backyard and I needed a screen. I was doing it on the side of my garage. And my friends like get a screen. So I got a screen and I didn't look at the size and it's like, <laughs> So one day I come home in this huge long box, <laughs> my porch, and I'm like, "Oh shit, I think I messed up." <laughs> it is humongous, a humongous uh, projector screen. So yeah, I think that was kind of the weirdest. Next time I will read thoroughly uh, before I buy something like that. My daughter's like, "Why don't you donate this to a school or something?" I'm like, "I'm gonna use it." <laughs> So basically, are we getting invited to a backyard movie viewing? There has to be a backyard. Yeah, there will be a backyard oh. video movie night something that, All right. that you could probably see from where you're at. That's how big the screen is. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. Is there something, like, is there a certain activity that you're really excited to do again um, now that things are getting slightly back to normal? You know, what's so funny, and a lot of people don't know this about me, but with COVID, is I'm an introverted person. So when they said we had to stay in our house, I thought, yes. <laughs> I don't <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't a struggle for me to adjust uh, to stay in the house. One thing, and even though the, you know things are getting back to normal and I'm vaccinated and all the things, that I will say, and this is gonna sound so like, you know, petty and whatever, is I am looking forward to wearing lipstick again. I really am. <laughs> You know, I am I so lip- with you. Yes, I'm a lipstick girl. I love my lipstick. But you know, I was one of those people when they said put on the mask, I wore the mask. You know, if it's, that's what y'all say is going to work, I'll do it. And but I, uh, the last few days I've been out and I had some lipstick on and I thought, God, I miss wearing lipstick. I well, I didn't understand the lipstick hype until like maybe two years ago. So like I was new to it and then it got stolen from me. It's part of my my white privilege loss of COVID is that <laughs> I couldn't wear lipstick anymore. No, but and I'm so glad that I get to wear lipstick again. You know, one thing COVID taught me though was all of the little things that we take for granted. Mm-hmm. You know, just being able to be out with friends, being able to hug people, being able to high five mm-hmm. somebody, laugh with your friends. It really made you think about God, you took all that for granted, you know, um, and I hope we've at least gotten a little bit of that. I mean, being able to wear lipstick is such a minor thing that you would never think that one day you wouldn't be able 
to do that, you know, um, yeah. that I hope we have learned some of those lessons and not take them, the little things that you don't think about all the time for granted. That's very fair. And I got one question left for you. How can okay. people follow you? Oh, please follow me on Twitter and Instagram. It's Hannah Drake 628. That's my birthday. So I'm a June baby. My birthday is this month. Happy early Hannah birthday. 628. Thank you. And on Facebook, it's uh, Hannah L. Drake. If you try to follow my personal page, I'm maxed out. So you have to follow my, my, I hate saying a fan page, but whatever it is, what it is. But Hannah well, you're Drake. cool enough to have 5,000 friends. <laughs> I think you can call yeah. it a fan page, Hannah. <laughs> I think that's kind of what happens to artists as they become successful. <laughs> and please read my blog and. Oh, uh, quick call my... out your piece on what women would do at night was. Oh, awesome. yeah. Thank that you. was great. So good. Thank you so much. I was amazed by. Uh, all the things the women wanted to do, but uh, someone said in the article, uh, the word walk appeared 298 times. Yes. I mean, that's what I kept thinking of when uh, the, when you asked people like, what would you, you know, do if you weren't scared of men, basically. Yeah, basically. And, and you know, I was like, me, we're, we're not scared of the dark. We're scared of men. Yeah. You know, if it was a world of all women, we probably, and I'm not saying that that women don't commit crimes or anything like that. But I think in general, the consensus was, and I did ask in another, uh, in another Facebook post, is it men that you're afraid of? Or what? And, and, and the resounding answer was, yes, we're afraid of, of men. I know that drives my fear at night uh, yeah. is mm -hmm. some man is somewhere lurking and I'm you know, going to be a victim of something. And, but it was amazing to see so many women just wanted to walk. That's it. Yeah, I know. Isn't that sad? It's, it's very sad. It's very crazy. Sad. Yeah, thank you so much for being on here, Hannah. We appreciate your time so much. Thank you. No, Can this I tell has people been great. Friends? <laughs> Are we allowed to claim you now as a friend? You can like, claim me now. <laughs> okay. Yes. All right. So if you're here in Louisville, someone be like, oh, you know, Crimson, she says you guys are like besties. Just just nod your head and agree. I, I, I got you. Just text right. me. I'll Venmo you five <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you make us cooler, Hannah. But thank you so much for the work you do. Thank you. you know, it's through art and it's through words that uh we 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 grow as people and we express ourselves and um yeah, just thank you for being among us. Thank you for existing. Like we need this and we appreciate you. Thank you all so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you everyone everyone for listening. Uh we will catch you next time. Thanks. Peace out, everyone. Bye. Bye, everyone. It is difficult to stand in spaces. Spaces that weren't designed for me. Spaces that were not created for people that looked like me. Spaces that scream, you do not belong here. Spaces that feel like sandpaper against my blackness, coarse and rough and painful and uneasy. Spaces that are void of signs, but still I can see them hanging in a not-so-distant memory. Signs that separated water fountains and restaurants, blatantly reminding people that these spaces were not made for them. And although the signs no longer remain, the architecture and atmospheres constructed in such a way that I know and we know that 
These are not our spaces. We are simply standing in borrowed time to entertain the master's masses. It is difficult to stand in these spaces and be me, fully me. Code switching my vernacular to make you feel comfortable. Why must my life dress itself up in discomfort for you to feel at ease? Why must my hair look a certain way in these spaces? Why is my gender an issue in these spaces? Why does my skin feel so heavy in these spaces? You see, these are spaces I no longer want to reside in. I do not enjoy being in these spaces. I no longer want to subject myself to these spaces, but then I am reminded. As I stand in these spaces and I see the faces of these two little black girls watching me perform in awe, because I am a woman with kinky hair like them and skin that looks like theirs and lips that look like theirs standing in these spaces. Spaces that have been designed in ways that have spoken to them at an early age, reminding them, baby, some spaces just ain't for your kind. You see that? It's why I'm in these spaces being a shout in these spaces. It is for every black person that has ever entered a room and wondered, would anyone look like them in these spaces? It is for every LGBTQ person that has wondered, could they safely be themselves in these spaces? It is for every woman that has stood at the head of a boardroom table wondering, would she be considered equal in these spaces? It is for every Muslim woman that has wondered, could she wear her hijab in these spaces? You see, I remember those that stood in spaces not made for them, that marched on roads not paved for them, that sat down on seats and buses not earmarked for them that sat down at counters and endured the humiliation of sitting in spaces so that one day I too could stand in these spaces. You see, that is why I'm in these spaces. It is for everyone that came before me, that sipped water at the colored only fountain, that marched into integrated schools and knew they would be just one of nine. It is for every black performer that stood on stages so that one day little black kids could know that they too could stand on these stages. It is for my mother, my mother, that stood in the space of a cotton field picking cotton for 80 cents a day. It is for everyone that will come after me, for them to know that they have a right to be in these spaces, to have a seat at the table in these spaces, to have a voice in these spaces, to have influence in these spaces. You see, that is why I stand in these spaces even when it makes me uncomfortable. And now some of you sit looking at me and now you feel uncomfortable. But today you have heard me. You cannot unsee me in this space. I belong in this space. We are here and we belong here in this space. <laughs>